0: If you want to understand the future, the winners and losers of the 21st century, just look at how young people vote their feet today. And this is how to answer your question. And this is why I bring up places like Berlin and Finland in the book. It becomes becomes perfectly logical. If you are a young person and your parents have passed away or they're old, they're taken care of, they're in a retirement home, and you don't have kids or you have only one kid, what you're going to do is to probably try and move to a place where other people have kids because there's so few kids. So, the reason people are pouring into East Berlin is not just because it's like, you know, fun and wild and liberal, hedonistic kind of place. It's also because young families are there. And all of the young people who do have just one kid are like, I need my kid to have someone to play with.
1: Greetings, Future Fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you back. The podcast that explores our place in time. This episode gets meta with an act of auto archaeology. Our guest is Parag Khanna, who I met 11 years ago as a contributor to his Hybrid Reality Institute's platform on bigthink.com, along with people you might recognize, like Jason Silva. Exploring the future of human-machine coevolution, Prague is a noted futurist and global technology thinker, author of many best-selling books, including Hybrid Reality with his wife, Aisha, as well as Connectography and the most recent book, which we'll discuss on the show today, Move, about the forces uprooting us and sending people around the world. I mentioned in this conversation a 2004 interview with author Alan Moore, in which he describes what we're living through as a species right now as a kind of phase change between a liquid and a gas. And if you haven't noticed in this extraordinarily hot and chaotic, volatile summer, and as well as more broadly and chronically under the forces that I regularly discuss on this show that are tearing at the fabric of cohesive human attention, culture, and society. It would seem as though the character of these times is in a kind of gaseous state, in a new and more dynamic relationship with one another, with ideas, and with the very geography of human civilization. Whereas all of this tends to give me anxiety, as I have not yet fully made the turn from what Richard Doyle, my mentor at Penn State, describes as the passage from paranoia to metanoia. I would say that Parag seems rather gladly to be a fish swimming in the air. What's that? I want down like that. You don't want to eat a fish swimming in the air? Mm. That sounds like a bad idea. (laughs) I want to eat that fish, too. Uh, Yeah, well, we're not going to eat that fish. We're going to talk to him. (laughs) We're not going to swim in the sea, but he wouldn't eat us. No. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Ada. That's my three-year-old daughter sitting in my lap, distracting me terribly while I try to record this intro. Anyway, yes, Parag, a global citizen if ever I met one, someone whose profound grasp on the geopolitics and technological shifts propelling this movement are definitely worth our time and attention on this show. But before we get started, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I am going to talk about that fish swimming in the air. You're going to have to wait, baby girl, because I have to thank all of the new patrons, supporters of my work and a future fossils podcast that have come out of the woodwork this week in response to my rather obscene pleas for help on social media. It's been an extremely trying summer, punctuating uh, an extremely trying few years. Children with sleep issues and new allergies and teething, and like I said, a chaotic environment meteorologically as well as in my work environment. And it means an enormous amount to me to finally see the silent majority of listeners step forward incrementally, in large part to support the content and community moderation efforts I've been putting forward. In our Facebook group and Discord server, which, by the way, I will now start purging non-paying members from those groups. If you would like to stay involved, please consider either making a financial contribution or finding some other way to lend time, talent, and expertise to this show, because like I told people already, I have been literally falling apart trying to keep all of these things going for you all. So anyway, thank you so much to the profundity of new supporters on Bandcamp, Patreon, and Substack, including Sumer Gosonisio, Kiona Budnick, Bill Rice, Samuel, Emma Donovan, Moses Cerulis, Hannah Gotze, Dylan Elmgreen, James Weir, Emily Worthlin, Julian Picasa, Sarah Cantrell, David Campbell, Jake Johansson, David Swirsky, James Stroud, Marshall Murphy, Kristen Linquist. Wow, y'all are amazing. Folks, that URL is patreon.com slash Michael Garfield, where you can find the complete show notes for every episode as I release them, as well as plenty of links to things like Ableton Live set sample libraries, enormous amounts of unreleased podcast episodes and original music, and links to the entire gallery of thousands of AI artworks I have been producing with the MidJourney software over the last few weeks. I also want to give a special thanks to Future Fossils listener Tammy Pudina, who this week stepped forward to volunteer her time to help me edit the audio on this show, which is by far the biggest and most challenging piece of the production pipeline. She is an instrumental part of at least the next two episodes with Roland Harwood and Lauren Saylor and helping me get this show back onto a regular bi-weekly schedule. For everyone who has been uh, frustrated or disappointed that this show has not been coming out regularly, thank you so much for your patience. Please help me find new listeners by leaving a five-star glowing, effusive review of Future Fossils on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you can. And with that, give it up for Parag Khanna, In a tense, challenging, but sublime and inspiring conversation about his book, Move the Forces Uprooting Us. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned. Okay, so this conversation is actually a conversation about I read your book and two things. First of all, I want to must remove my shoes before I I enter the building. Like, I have to acknowledge the enormous amount of research that went into this and just honor that.
0: One shouldn't write a book under any other conditions. I like to think, or publish one, I should say. Right.
1: But then the other is, is this question of like, you know, when, when you and I met, it was over a decade ago. It was. And I was not a family man at that time. And now I am. And I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm looking at you and I'm scratching my head. And I'm wondering how one holds the ideas that you hold and is also doing the things that you do. Cause for me, it seems like my life of movement, that family life brought that to a rather abrupt <laughs> reconsideration. Right. And I was more international than I had ever been in my life in the, like two years before I had a kid. And then right. I've never been more. Of a place since?
0: Well, there's the, my personal answer and then there's also the kind of global answer from the yeah. research. And maybe they point in the same direction, but for different reasons. I mean, we became more, well, I can't say more because I've been traveling since I was an infant, but I mean, we, we relocated five or six times over the course of the last 10 years with kids. And it's been incredibly fun. But part of it is that the more you move, Or find places that are optimal for child raising, meaning having schools, safety, nannies, you know, all of those kinds of considerations. They compel you to move. So having kids can be a motivator to relocate. So, for example, if I had stuck with the exact same career path I was on prior to marriage and children, I'd be working overtime in the basement of the Pentagon or the State Department right now. Instead, I'm here in Singapore in this tropical urban paradise full of all of the amenities and comforts uh, that life has to offer. So that's with kids. So there's a motivation to move. But as you know, a big theme of the book, of course, is the childless future. So after you and me comes generations of young people already today. This is not science fiction in the sense that right now. We have uh, young millennials, Gen Z, and probably Gen Alpha, too, that simply won't have children, right? And if they do, maximally one child. So the conditions that made people like you or me or our parents, for sure, sedentary, which is to say they had kids and they bought homes, those two principal conditions are simply not present today. So young people are as likely as ever to just keep on moving. And that was before climate change, of course. So right, I foresee right. this kind of global nomadism effectively being facilitated by lack of home ownership, childlessness, climate change, obviously political alienation, all of the things that have always compelled people to say, I don't like it here and I'm going to act on it. They're more capable of acting on it than ever before.
1: So we need to give people an entry
0: point here.
1: And I think... I want to just roam freely with you on this. But first, I want you to just give the thesis and to anchor the thesis in your own story, in your own history and and biography, so that how you came to this thinking and how you came to these questions, that we can really moor that there and use that.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, as a kind of geographer by accident, you know i've always been thinking about the different layers of physical topographical existence right so physical environmental resource geography then political geography which is definitely my most formal level of training so again geopolitics first and foremost then economic geography supply chains urbanization cities also things i've written about and this book is about human geography the fourth layer of geography right so after resources politics, and economics, it's people, human geography. So this book is basically a sequel to connectography, which came a few years ago, and that was the geography of physical infrastructure, transportation, energy, communications, networks, and how they remap the world. And this book is simply answering the question, what are we going to do with it? What will humankind, the 8 billion, 9 billion of us of the future, do with all of this physical connectivity? That is overlaid onto our physical geography to answer the question where will you, where will I, where will humanity physically reside in the year 2050? And it proves not to be a very simple answer, even if you reverse engineer it down to earlier periods, say 2025, 2030, 2040, and incrementally answering how we got to where we will be was the intent of this book and it proved that humanity becomes ever more a moving target. Whereas today we take our geography for granted, we say, I am in Santa Fe, you know, I am in Los Angeles, I am in Singapore. It was ever thus, not us particularly, but you know, you know, Germans are where Germans are, Americans are where Americans are, Chinese are where Chinese are. But what if the next 20, twenty, thirty years looks really, really different? And how we got to that point and how, in fact, we have been more nomadic and and mobile than we think. And we've created the conditions and unleashed the forces that will compel us to be more mobile. And where that's going to drive us, again, an emphasis on who and where is what this book is about.
1: So there's a collision here, right? Because in the time since last you and I spoke, I feel like we were sort of sipping off the same strange brew of like, Ricardo Hausman's Cesar Hidalgo type, thinking about like international trade network (laughs) growth, complex systems of the capacities of different economies.
0: Oh, I still swear by the economic complexity literature. It's a subset of globalization. It's part of my active and vigorous defense of globalization today is pointing out that disentangling and near-shoring global supply chains is not e- e- not nearly as, easable, uh, as easy as many people make it out to be because, uh, as I said in that Connectography book, which was very much like a homage to Ricardo Haussmann, I said, everything is made everywhere. And people are learning that right now the hard way, right? And again, that's just one part of globalization. But the original globalization, the very first globalization, was mankind's first step out of Africa. And I begin the book at that moment, and I say, remember that whatever you think about globalization, the globalization of people is an ongoing and in some ways accelerating phenomenon. So don't pretend for a moment that just because the rate of growth in global trade is slightly lower than the rate of GDP growth in the domestic consumer economy, that suddenly you have come up with some gotcha statistic to tell me that globalization is suddenly going into a tailspin Because that's the narrowest of nonsense.
1: (laughs) Well, okay. So, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of time on this question about the tensions between people and institutions, the different scales, how much agency at any given scale is impacting agency at other scales. And when I had Kevin Kelly on the show, for instance, he put out this book, Vanishing Asia, which was this... Photographic journey of this, you know, all of this. Uh, stuff. I,
0: I'm a I'm a founding contributor to his. uh this is the prize possession on my coffee table. Totally, Kevin's vanishing Asia. You Reboss. get
1: it, and he, you know, he talks about the consolidation. Like, yes, more opportunity, more promise. Okay, so like, let me just get this one out of the way so that we can have a nice, clear footing moving forward. But like, to me, the whole thing seems. Very precarious. Like I want this whole globalist human technocratic thing is a kind of a Star Trek thing, but like, you know, Star Trek posits a third world war based on like bioengineering and like eugenics as a precursor, like a a precedent. And I'm always wondering like, is there a way for us to reconcile people's need for place with people's need for movement. Because, for instance, late historian William Irwin Thompson talked about there being sanguinal polities, geographic polities, noetic polities, right? And the overlaps of those three things, you know, the overlaps are confusing. Like, I want to be more international than I am. But, and this is me just framing the sort of nagging thing for this whole ep- this whole conversation in one question, and we can just pick it apart. You and I seem aligned on this. Like it doesn't seem like th- that nation states are really keen, on average, on giving people this sort of okay, go ahead, move where you want to go thing.
0: Oh, I would never deny that. I mean, you know, my my work is on borders. You know, I am the first to acknowledge and literally count, you know, the uh, that the fact that we have more borders today than ever in history. You know, I've written written entire books just about that. So I'm not a uh, borderless world, you know, kind of globalist, though obviously I'm caricatured in that way in some quarters. But one of the things that I state very plainly in the book is the single one thing that we will never have a global agreement about is the free mobility of people across borders. We may have treaties governing everything from environmental regulation to internet technology to how we jointly colonize the moon I mean, you can imagine international cooperation on lots of things, even if it's still a distant dream in some of these domains today, but I literally cannot ever imagine. The one thing that you're positing is sort of, you know, my ideological creed, which it may be, but I'll separate that fully from my analysis. We will never have governments agree on the free movement of people borders, because when every vestige of sovereignty has been taken away from states, right, you cannot control the flow of pollutants, pathogens, cyber attacks across your borders, the one thing left, remember, we're talking about geography here, it's the control over your physical borders against the movement of people. So hardly am I in denial about this. It is the front and center. It is about what we do despite that. How do we realign the geography of people, the geography of borders, the geography of resources, the geography of economics? There is what we are doing and there's what we could do. Right. There is the analytical and the, the normative. But surprisingly, a couple of two other points. One is there is no average state. And this is something that I think, you know, serious political scientists acknowledge. If you're a serious political scientist and you and you're a pure a pure theorist, you take the state as some kind of uh, homogeneous ideal type, and you impose it on the world as if that actually exists, and that's where your relevance utterly ceases to, you know, be defensible. <laughs> because for someone who is a traveler, for someone who does write international relations from the bottom up, the fact is there are no two states are exactly alike. Nothing of the sort. The capacity differences. The leverage that some have over others, the hierarchy of power among them is different in different places, different times, different different periods, and so on. So there is no normal state. But when you say, because I know what you're referring to, you're kind of saying, well, look, what about the mood? What about protectionism, xenophobia, populism? So let's go with the facts here, right? The principal key, let's just take Western civilization, because you also roughly mean that when you say we, right? So I want to ask you which country is most representative. Of Western civilization that quote unquote doesn't seem keen on enabling the mobility of people. Is that state Hungary or is that state Canada? Is that state Italy or is that state England, right? Is that state Bulgaria or is that state America? Because as far as I can tell right now, with every single census data point at our disposal right now, the foreign born populations of Canada. United States, Britain, Germany, the four most important countries in the entire in Western civilization are more and more open to international migration flows. Their populations become more diverse, more mixed race with every passing minute. And that occurred even after Brexit, after Donald Trump. We have the October 2021 census of the United States. Yes, net immigration figures were down. That actually began under Obama. Or not, then through Trump and then COVID. But this year, 2022, as we speak, Congress is presuming nearly 1 million migrants will enter the United States this year. So we will have gone in America from 246,000 immigrants the year before to nearly a million in one year. Canada, increasing its population by 1% per year, not by accident, but by design. Germany, only country in Western Europe with a growing workforce because of immigration, right? Britain is making it easier. Every six months, they're passing new legislation that effectively undermines the spirit of Brexit, which is they're making it easier and easier to move there because they realize what shortages they have in everything from farmers to truck drivers to nurses and doctors. So what is that average Western state that you or, or again, our general political mood is referring to when we believe that populism, xenophobia, nationalism, protectionism, and borders are the true new meta narrative and order of the day. The fact is that when you actually look at the truth of the world from the bottom up, day to day movements, we have more mobility than ever before. More people live outside their country of birth and origin than ever before. Those numbers are rising, basically, not at the rate like never before, but the net number is far, far larger than ever before so there's what people say and there's what people do and one of the most fun parts to be honest of the book to write was to look at conscription policies so I looked at kind of uh, countries that demand that you know the the equivalent of you or me at the age of 18 has to go and serve in the army and there is this again this narrative out there and it's it comes very often from the avuncular you know uh, East Coast international relations elite that I you know sort of still in some ways, a card-carrying member of, though I reject many of its tenets and analysis, but they say there's this return of the civilizational state, strongman nationalism, look at Erdogan, look at Putin, look at Modi in India, look at even the five-star movement in Italy, and so on and so forth. I'm like, okay, why don't we look at these countries? And why don't we look and see if the man... That you may be into this great civilizational, revanchist power actually maps onto the movement and views of their people. Well, lo and behold, there's no better predictor of ordinary people, young men and women, wanting to leave, wanting to get the hell out of a country than having a leader like that. And the best lens is to look at conscription policies. So you've got conscription in Russia, you have conscription in Turkey, you have conscription in all these countries. And the rite of passage for every single 18 year old male in those countries is to collect as many rubles and lira as you can and bribe your way out. And that was before Russia invaded Ukraine. (laughs) So the real world again, is people leaving precisely those countries. When Matteo Salvini in Italy, declared a family first, right? Immigration or, or uh, you know, pro natal policy, you know, women need to stay at home and make babies. Guess what happened the next year? Women left Italy. So people move, right? <laughs> Whether you want them to move or not to move. <laughs> anyway, thousands of more stories in that direction.
1: Yeah, I guess for me, I saw 2008, I saw the writing on the wall. And I was trying to convince the woman who is now the mother of my children to escape with me to Australia. And it didn't happen. And I feel like there are a lot of people, I have to assume the majority of the listeners of this show are American. It does seem sort of like a fortress mm-hmm. in some respects. There's this combination of what is it like the $6 gas and COVID there's a complex systems thing here where it's like, whoops, maybe we were too connected. And of course the question for you is in running toward the obvious goods, the clear lucid virtues of all of this, it seems like licking the blade, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how to think about it.
0: At first paraphrase Trotsky's. it's always fun to do. <laughs> you may not be interested in migration, but migration is interested in you, right? So even if you lead your comfortable existence in America, that doesn't mean that others have live in lands bounteous in resources and industry and geographies that you can settle and inhabit. So people are coming, and even if you are not leaving, the second thing, and this is just a point of clarification, migration is not necessarily international migration. The most significant migration in all of world history is Chinese people moving from rural China and villages to coastal China. They never left China, they'll never leave China, but they radically transformed the face and the contours and the trajectory of what is the most populous country and largest economy in the entire world and reshaped the entire world economy without ever leaving their country most human beings will never leave the country in which they were born even in the scenarios even in the most ludicrous outlandish scenarios of uncontrollable mass migration that i forecast or posit in this book most people will still never leave either the country in which they were born or the continent in which they reside right you could have lots more movement of africans around africa south americans in south america a lot more asians moving around asia and so forth But still then, I I actually, at the beginning, I, I actually bracket out 4 billion people. See, there's probably 4 billion people at least who are too old, too sick, too poor, too geographically marginalized to ever come anywhere close to dreaming of crossing a border. So now I'm taking the remaining 4 billion people in the world, most of whom are young, and saying, okay, where are those 4 billion people right now? What is their capacity? What is their desire? What agency do they have? to be able to move? And is that move going to be domestic or international? And there you're talking about real world, plausible, you know, scenarios and the likelihood that India, which again, going back to the strongman nationalism is by far. And, and, and Michael, it's like, take a bar chart, raise your hand up to the ceiling, then put a giant break in the middle and down to the floor, right? The ceiling is the number of Indians who leave India every year. The floor. Is the number two country on the list, okay, which is like Poland, pre Russia invasion of Ukraine. So, you know, you're also talking about what is the, one of the youngest and effectively now the most populous country in the entire world, the country perhaps m- among the most afflicted by climate change. And you've got a recipe for a mass migrant outflow. So, India alone is going to account for more human beings crossing a border and leaving their country than many of the other countries on earth combined. A now let's come back to America though. Movement within America is a time honored tradition, right? I mean, it is the pioneer spirit of the 19th century manifest destiny, continentalism, you name it, but Americans have been stuck in place. And most, I'm not advocating that Americans leave America though. Again, by the way, not so fun fact, the number of Americans outside of America has never been higher. Right? So again, don't answer the question as if it's you or me in our comfortable existence, right? Imagine that you are a millennial or Gen Z. Well, you are you are a millennial, but imagine that you are Gen Z, Gen L. I'm a Zenial, sort of a cusp, young, young Gen X. Now, you know, those are the ones who are buying the mobile homes. Those are the ones who are moving to Costa Rica or Panama or Bali uh, or Tbilisi, Georgia, or East Berlin. And you add all those people up. That's 9 million American passport holders who are not living in the United States, right? So the expats, people like me who have you know, left over the last uh, decade and been itinerant, but elsewhere. So there is that, but let's just put that to the side because that's still a very small percentage of the American population, which is growing, which is in the, within the lower 48 states and is going to remain in the lower 48 states. I have no problem with that, but that, is not, that doesn't limit what we're talking about when we say migration. Right. Because climate migration alone, economic migration in search of opportunity, economic migration, fleeing the deindustrialization of the Rust Belt, accelerated the shift of people from the northeast of the United States to the southwest of the United States. Americans are moving. Climate migration means that where there is drought, which is where you live, um, where there are heat waves, which is everywhere right now, where electricity grids and power failures become more frequent. People, where crime becomes in, un, intolerable, people will say, I'm out. You know, I may move one county over. I may move another state or two over. I'm still in the United States, So that's, that's migration, just to be clear. And I spent a lot of the book looking at just Americans in America, because actually we have this notion of what is the American dream. And to me, it's about mobility and skills, not just about home, have, buying a home and earning a degree. And so to me, you know, the best form of achieving social mobility is enabling physical mobility. And this has been very clearly documented by Raj Chetty at Harvard and his work funded by Gates and other foundations. Make this absolutely clear. You can track people's incomes from the census tract zip code that they grew up in from birth till death. You know, their prospects for everything from uh, educational attainment to income and healthcare and life expectancy, and so on. And people who are stuck in place are not going to achieve as much as if people physically get up and move to places that offer a greater opportunity, right? And so, within the United States, too, even if you took all Americans and closed, put, put up the fortress, use the word fortress, which I think is, is not inappropriate at all, literally do put a moat around the country, put up walls, everyone, just run an experiment. On what happens to the finite stock of 300 million people? Well, obviously, if you were to try and achieve autarky instantaneously, that alone would <laughs> would create a lot of dislocation. But holding all else equal, you're going to see a lot of movement, and that's every bit as important as international migration. So I'm not just the airy fairy globalist talking about the long term cosmopolitan vision. I'm looking at what's better, best, what is the best outcome for just ordinary people in their ordinary places. I go toe to toe a lot with German kind of you know conservatives on the issue of immigration. And I'm happy any given day to get in their face and say you are killing your own parents. Why? Because chances are your parents don't live in a big city, you know, like Berlin or Frankfurt. They live in a second tier, third tier town that's depopulating. They're aging because all European countries are aging rapidly. And if you are anti-immigration, that means that you're not importing enough of the Bulgarian, Romanian, Ukrainian, or Filipino nurses to care for your parents. But you've left them behind, right? You're off in Berlin, you're in Hamburg, you're gallivanting around Europe doing your job. And meanwhile, your elderly parents are suffering and dying alone. And the rate of elderly people who literally die alone, right, is rising. You can track it anecdotally in Spain, in Italy, in France, in America, in Japan, for sure. As you well know, you see this in the news. You know, uh, local policeman in prefecture or whatever in Japan opens up an apartment and there's, you know, dead grandma, grandpa that have been sitting there, lying there for months. No one knows how long. Is that dignified? Is that civilized? Is that what you consider to be a civilized society? Because I, I don't. And so if you are against optimizing migration to cater to the needs of your own citizens, you know, you're effectively, in my view, an immoral person. Right? You're, you're consciously choosing... Uh, a suboptimal outcome that lowers the standard of living of your society. So immigration is part of that. And again, I'm, I'm speaking about the needs of everyday people, not cosmopolitan pipe dreams. And those who speak in actually in the poetic, you know, romantic nationalist terms about identity, you know, and hold everything as the, hold the barometer of nation statehood to be the 19th century European construct. They're the ones living in a fantasy world, right? Because if your job is it to be a public official and to actually achieve certain, even if you believe in zero growth, and we can, that's a whole separate conversation, even if you believe that immigrants are you know, damaging the environment because they will achieve higher standards of living when they come to our country and so on and so forth, even then, you are nonetheless in a very retail way, right? You are harming your parents. And I want you to live with that. If you actually believe that you can posit some perfect population model that doesn't include immigration while also having low fertility at the same time, because that's the world that we are in right now.
1: This is great. And I'm glad that you brought it to this because this is a core to this consideration. Reading your book, the demographic age cohort piece of this was so, so, so prominent for me in the tensions that I feel as the father of a young family hundreds of miles away from anyone else, blood relations. And so this is, you know, to make it a little bit more personal, I wanted to ask you brass tacks, like you have moved so much and are thus a model for the virtue and world space that you're advocating here. How? Okay. So at least as far back as Alan Moore's, I think it was a 2004 film made about him where he, he talked about how he thought that digital technologies were creating a phase transition in society, you know, that we were going from like a liquid to a gas. And I guess even, even earlier, like Zygmunt Bauman had, had written about liquid modernity and so on. You know, there's, a, there's this notion of like that we are boiling here, you know, and you think about the miles traveled by a person over average per capita over the course of the 20th century, it's insane. Mm -hmm. To me, that looks like what it means to be human is going to have to be fundamentally different.
0: Or does it? I mean, let's remember that to be human is to be bipedal and to have the capacity for mobility. (laughs) To be human for the past 100,000 years has meant that we have physically relocated what is actually new, right? I mean, yeah.
1: Absolutely. I think that you and I are aligned in that movement is actually the default state for human beings. Right. But that's like movement within this web of closely held connections, like, you know, familial bonds and so on. And for me as a transplant out here, you know, you're talking about, you know, this, this American libertine, go West young man thing. Well, I did that and I'm here in Santa Fe and I'm 700 miles from anyone. And, and you know, and we, need hire, we need to hire childcare. Mm-hmm. And it's like the people I see really thriving in this town. Oh, oh yeah, my they're seven generations deep. They can just punt the kids off to extended family. And so back to Bill Thompson's sanguinal geographic noetic kind of thinking, it's like, How have you personally, and how do you imagine generally, how do you see people generally making sense of the missing people piece of it? Because it's it's like, yes, yes, opportunity. There's no question. That was the crux of my conversation with Kevin. Kelly was like, yes, obviously people are moving into the city for more opportunity. But how do we carry these other things into this space? Can we?
0: Well, I think there's sort of like, I'll give you an anecdotal answer, because here in Singapore, obviously there's entrenched families born and raised here. We see this with lots of friends who are locals, their grandparents, both sets of grandparents live within one kilometer in either direction of our friends, so they can have them come over any time. But even if they weren't there, even if, they've now, even if they're now deceased... They've got um, helpers, nannies that come from the Philippines or Indonesia, Myanmar, India, you know, what have you, in the house as as most private homeowners have here in a country like this or many other countries where that are crossroads for different populations and different rungs of the economic ladder and different functions in society like childcare and, and you know nursing and so forth. So so even though my parents don't live here, they'll come for like six weeks at a time, come stay over. But, you know, we have child care anyway. And again, the fact that you don't have, a, a, you know, a nanny living in the house or the fact that lots of mothers during COVID, you know, had to quit their jobs because they had to manage the remote schooling of their uh, kids. They had to take care of their parents and drive around. They had to cook and clean and do the laundry and also try and do their own jobs. It reached the, the, the breaking point. So what was called the motherhood penalty during COVID? Well, that too has a solution. Guess what that solution is? It's called immigration, right? Because, you know, even if it's lower wage immigration, even if it on paper depresses average wages, we know that there's labor market segmentation going on. Just because a um, a nurse comes in or a caregiver comes in from El Salvador, it doesn't mean a university professor earns less money right? The fact is that women, working women in America suffer the indignity of having to choose. They're suffering a lot more indignities as after a day before yesterday, but different topic. The fact is that COVID deeply, deeply exposed, you know, this huge familial divide, those that can afford to have these abundant services and those that can't and most can't. And that particularly affects women. And that's, again, just like having your parents die alone uh, because there wasn't you know, sufficient care for them. This is a political choice we're making. So that's it. But uh, let's get back to the generation, because it's that search for community. And, and one of the things I had to do, and it was it was not easy, which proves that I'm a little bit older than I thought <laughs> I, I, I was, was to put myself in the shoes of today's tweens and teens and 20-something. And I really scrambled the methodology, you know, around this book. Like, you know, obviously I go put my boots on the ground. I'll interview hundreds, if not thousands of people, literally for for any any book I write. But I didn't just go to meet like, you know, secretary of defense, whatever, from, you know, country X this time. I actually had focus groups of like kids, went to high schools, met young professionals, digital nomads talk to universities and colleges like everywhere. And I've been doing that all along and gathering material, but I, in a dedicated, concerted way, was like, I want to know what young people think. For this book, I almost only want to know what you think if you're under the age of 30. If you're not under the age of 30, you'll be dead in the time horizon that this book is playing out. And therefore I am going to massively overweight in my methodology, young people's points of view. And therefore, You don't hear this sanguinal kind of, you know, ethnicity first, nation first, family first, when you talk to young people. And that is not a fringe phenomenon, Michael. That is literally more than 50% of the human population is the core demographic subject of this book. They're not peripheral. They're not secondary. They're not waiting for their turn to have their hands on the levers of control of society, right? They are voting with their feet. And again, if you want to understand the future, the winners and losers of the 21st century, just look at how young people vote their feet today. And this is how to answer your question. And this is why I bring up places like Berlin and Finland in the book. And it, becomes, it becomes perfectly logical. If you are a young person and your parents have passed away or they're old, they're taken care of, they're in a retirement home, and you don't have kids or you have only one kid, what you're going to do is to probably try and move to a place where other people have kids because there's so few kids. So the reason people are pouring into East Berlin is not just because it's like, you know, fun and wild and liberal, hedonistic kind of place. It's also because young families are there and all of the young people who do have just one kid are like, I need my kid to have someone to play with. And so in East Berlin, in particular, I say East Berlin as if it's divided from West Berlin. It's obviously not anymore. <laughs> but with the, the, the defining moment of my life was actually when the Berlin Wall came down. And I went there and I was 12 years old. It was a big deal for me. So I still have this mental... I've lived in Berlin, you know, like four times over the last 30 years. It's my, my home away from home. So I still think of it. I've lived in both sides of the city also. So I say East Berlin, like I'm an old timer, like, you know, from the communist <laughs> era or something. But point, point, point. Helsinki... In Finland,
1: hey, we got a new Top Gun this year. You're 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 not old. Sheesh. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, but like you know, so, so cities like Helsinki are saying, you know what, young families come on, come all. We'll redesign the physical space, the architecture, the infrastructure of childcare, of education, um, and real estate companies are doing this right. Tischmann's Bay or others are saying, let's build new kinds of condos with lots more open shared spaces for all those families who live in our properties, who have exactly one kid, to have them play together so that the parents can go off and do their jobs, have quiet time, they'll volunteer and rotate. So, space, so all of this is happening right now, and guess what, young people are going to those places. So when you say, where do we find that sense of identity, community, belonging, why does the definition of what identity, belonging, and community are have to be the same as what it was at a time that neither you nor I, quite frankly, can even remember, right? Effectively irrelevant era from a demographic standpoint, when right before our eyes right now, all the young people of the world are saying, I wanna go find and define my own identity and find a place where I belong and participate and build in a new kind of community. And I'm gonna physically go and vote with my feet and go to wherever that place is. And it could be Denver within our own country, or it could be just over the border in Toronto, which is a place thriving with uh, building an international sense of identity. It could be London. It could be Berlin. It could be, again, Tbilisi, Georgia, Almaty, Kazakhstan, Bali, because that's happening. That's not, again, and now it's dis- let's, dis- let's dispense with another thing. The fact that this may seem like it's a rounding error statistically, right? Like the number of people. In. Okay, well, let's be clear. As I said at the beginning, you can. all people are sadly not created equal in terms of their material circumstances. So I'm starting with the 4 billion youngish people who are capable of relocating. I'm taking as a subset of that, the 2 billion who constitute the rising young middle class of edu- well enough educated people. And I'm, then I'm looking at the construction workers or the, the nannies and the caregivers. I'm looking at the digital nomads, the international students, all of them. Because let's face it, They move the needle here, right? We can have a whole conversation about the humanitarian nature. And certainly I toe that line very strongly, but you and I are talking about the young versions of ourselves, right? And the young versions of ourselves, whether they are Indian or Chinese or Nigerian or Brazilian or American are saying, I'm going to go wherever the hell I want because my passport now allows it. The world is more open than ever before. And there's actually a war for talent out there, companies. Universities will pay me to come to their country. So why not? So let's put aside, because again, obviously I devote large portions of the book to the humanitarian landscape of this, but let's talk about the people that you and I are actually talking about, because we're talking about our kids. We're talking about what do our kids, what are our kids gonna do in five years, ten years, fifteen years. Right? Let's be unbelievably selfish about the whole thing. And that's the world that the kids that are older than your kids and my kids are living right now. I see it every day because I employ. I hire, I mentor, I tutor, teach those kids. I see them everywhere, and they have zero, zero fear about leaving their local community, as if it was some perfect bucolic place. You know, as if they lived in a multi-family household with grandparents and parents all under one roof. What reality that, that that barely exists? Maybe in Santa Fe, right? But like that's not the world. <laughs> Already most people I mean, if you think about it, you were talking about the number of miles traveled by the average person in the 20th century. Let's look at and I don't have this at my fingertips, unfortunately but what is the average distance that a person that a, that a millennial or Gen Z lives from their parents? Now, I'm going to just hazard a guess that that distance is slightly greater than it was a generation ago right? So let's not be shocked when that proves to be true.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess for me, it's just this, I get into thinking about scaling laws because the urbanization thing, Jeffrey West at at the Santa Fe Institute talks about the finite time singularity, which is where the network benefits of living in the social reactor, right? I'm saying this for the benefit of listeners. I know, you know, but like the recombinant, bonus of living in a city is so magnetic and so novelty producing, but like, but novelty producing, it's like, uh, you know, it's patents and STDs and organized crime and per capita income, but only, you know, 90% of it to the top decile. So there's like, there's a way in which it seems like the finite time singularity is where he says, the innovation precipitates a crisis that pre- that must be solved by another innovation and that the cycle gets faster and faster and faster and faster until it happens faster than we can't respond to it and things collapse. And I think this is already happening in certain ways. And, you know, maybe COVID was an example of this where, like, as was the hyperconnected banking network, you know, cascading collapses in 2008, it's like we're doing the amphibian coming out of water thing here as a global civilization, right? We're like, in what ways can we be moving this as fast as you're talking about, as you're suggesting we will? In what ways can we, but we keep face planting? It turns out, wait a minute, like we absolutely need to move know how between these locations. We need to keep trade alive. We need to keep these connections vibrant. And also, you know, zoonotic illnesses are going to disrupt things. There's just like all of these endogenous sort of network-based collapsey things that get in between here and this dream. And the question, it's sort of like a, how do you make sense of all of, they're not edge cases. Like it's clear that we're, it, it's clear that this is extremely rocky.
0: Part of the innovation that is happening and that is necessary to cope with Jeffrey West, you know, the problematic that he's raising is what I guess you could call continental circularity. So, and this is kind of a core 19th century geopolitical thesis known as pan-regionalism and continentalism, as I mentioned briefly earlier when I was talking about American demographic manifest destiny. In the 19th century, geopolitical scholars sought to optimize, you know, the geographic resource base, you know, of their power, not just within boundaries, but the extension of power latitudinally so that you could grow food in all seasons. When it's winter in North America, it's summer in South America. Therefore, we need to have the Mano Doctrine and expand further southward and, and, you know, sort of tame as many geographies as we can within our latitude, right? So there is a shift happening right now in the world towards a greater regionalism. And that's what I call this continental circularity. So North America is by far the most self-sufficient uh, semi-autarkic continent in the world. We may have a very large trade deficit with China right now that's in fact widened during COVID because we got caught off guard not having domesticly produced basic medical equipment and things like this, PPE, that sort of thing. But what's happening now is that in North America, there is sufficient, there's natural resources, there's water, there's fuel, there is industry, there's people, there's technology, there's finance, right? Every ingredient to have complete autarky, as plausible as that is in the world, actually exists in North America. Europe could actually be similar. And Europe is, you know, from a climate change standpoint, at a more propitious latitude than the United States is. For those who don't think about this every day the way I do, I mean, Europe is at Canadian latitude. So climate change hits America much worse than it hits Canada or Europe, you know, newsflash. So Europeans, with their huge investments into energy, self-sufficiency, alternative energy, renewable energy, obviously, they've also gotten and are going to now redouble their efforts way faster than Americans will because public investment in infrastructure is far higher in Europe than in the U.S. There, too, you could imagine a certain regional circularity, right, self-sufficiency, right? They will import less. They will allocate more land for agriculture. They will end their resistance to some forms of GMO. They will do more with hydroponic and aquaponic agriculture, these sorts of things. And so will we. And Asia is similar. Asia has obviously half the world's people, huge economic size. So so anyway, you've got these regional zones that are trying to get their way out of the complexity trap, right? The interconnectedness of global supply chains becoming so complex and indecipherable that we don't know which point of vulnerability is going to cascade through the system. And bring down one society or civilization or economy after the other. And the way you undo that is through that localized or regional scale innovation towards greater self-sufficiency. So break the cycle of excessive. And as you know, uh, this is known as the kind of ecopolis theory, right? We when we were a small agricultural population, we were the agropolis. This is Herbert Girardet in Geneva. Then we were the petropolis of you know frictionless global. Energy supply chains and presuming that, you know, growing an avocado in a water stressed area and shipping it around the world (laughs) and producing huge greenhouse gas emissions as if that had no externalities of any kind. And the middle ground that we're actually, actually doing and heading towards and have all the technology at our fingertips at our disposal today, right now, to do further is this ecopolis idea where we go back to the local or regional scale stop building cities on arable land, and do more technological, uh, you know, sort of investment in food and energy production and gray water recycling, you name it, right? So amassing populations in climate resilient areas and making those, you know, models of those urban models more sustainable at the same time is not only plausible, it's again, what you see happening literally every day in Europe, even in America, in Japan, in parts of China, and so forth. There are places, obviously, that are going to, that are being catastrophically affected by climate change and no amount of sudden infusion of capital and know-how is going to save them from the heat waves and power failures and droughts that they're currently experiencing. And that, again, is much of the population of South Asia, much of the population of Africa, much of the population of Latin America. But remember, from a geographical standpoint, even a geological standpoint, most of the human population lives in the Northern Hemisphere which is slightly better off than the Southern Hemisphere. Most of the human population lives in Eurasia, this one large landmass to which I've dedicated most of my kind of career and and, and, and migrations. And therefore, mobility around the Eurasian landmass will account for the better part of the future migrations of the entire human species. So focusing on the side of the Pacific Ocean that I happen to be on right now, it is very plausible that more and more people will move and recirculate into the eastern Siberian provinces of uh, Russia, into Central Asia. That's why I have chapters of this book on places like Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, the Russian Far East, uh, the Caucasus. the NOAA, the NASA, the CIMP 5 and 6 maps, IPCC kind of projections tell us, what the livable geographies, or slightly relatively more livable, because we do have to take into account the feedback loops, right, that will affect places, and we can't be completely confident. But still, relatively speaking, they're the relative change in livability and suitability for human habitation. And guess what, Michael, people are actually going to those places. You may not be moving there. I'm not moving my family to Vladivostok next week. But it's happening. Russia just signed a skills partnership agreement to import Indian farmers because they don't have enough farmers in the Far East. So, you know, again, for every country, there is something going on beneath the radar that that constitutes some step-by-step incremental passage towards this recalibration of supply chains and, and, and pathway towards a new civilization. And one last thing, Michael, it comes back to cities, actually, because just because New York may be losing people right now And Los Angeles may be losing people right now. That doesn't mean that the city is losing, right? The city always wins. Let's have a couple of punchlines for everyone to take away. And I think this is one that people will actually like and appreciate. A, mobility always wins. B, globalization always wins. And C, the city always wins. The question is, which cities? Because Los Angeles is losing people doesn't mean that Austin didn't win, that Seattle didn't win, that Denver didn't win, that Boise didn't win, that Toronto didn't win. And so, and Rome's loss doesn't mean that Milan didn't win and Berlin didn't win because there are winning. So the question that I set out in the book is what are the future civilizational centers? We have been urbanizing for 7,000 years. The city has been winning for 7,000 years. 7,000 years from now, if we're still around, however many people, they will live in cities. The question is, where are those cities? What do those cities look like? Who's there? How are they governed? That Those kinds of questions. But make no mistake that, and again, it's New Yorkers <laughs> like me, but for, not me in particular, who say things like, oh, you know, the city is screwed because of COVID or, you know, fill in the blank. The city is never screwed. The question is which city is screwed? But more importantly, more interesting for, for us as futurists, quote unquote, is which cities will win in the future and why are they winners? Is it because of climate? Is it because of being politically open and liberal and embracing migrant populations? Is it because of their economic diversification efforts? In truth, it's all of the above. Because again, why did cities win in the past? Well, because they were in the right geographies. They had the right global connectivity and industry. They attracted uh, talented populations. They had diverse economies. Well, lo and behold, the same ingredients apply in the year 2040 or in the year, well, 2022, as probably in the year 2,222. So I'm out to find and locate physically what are those places and what are they doing right? And again, the early evidence is visible, whether it's in Toronto or Berlin or Almaty in Tokyo. Interestingly enough, you know I talk a lot about Tokyo in the book. It's like, well, Japan is depopulating. No country next to Russia, besides Russia, is depopulating as quickly as Japan. But the future population of the islands of Japan is very simple to see. It's fewer and fewer Japanese people and more and more non-Japanese people, right? I say the same thing in the book of Bulgaria, because Bulgaria is tiny. There is a future that's not all that far away, where there is almost no Bulgarians in Bulgaria. But that space that we identify on a map as Bulgaria is going to be full of people. They just won't be Bulgarian people. And in geography and in human geography, you don't have a problem with that. If you're a Bulgarian nationalist right now, you have a problem with what I just said. <laughs> but if you're an authentic human geographer, you know, which is what uh, this book aspires to reflect the, that community of scholars that I do I do a lot of work with, they don't have a problem with that. That's just the passage of time. That's the relationship between demographics and geography. That's how complexity affects geography right? All of those things. And it's happening in every place. There is no static, fixed map of humanity. We've always been on the move. We'll continue to be on the move. And places, the identity of place will change depending on the people who are there. And the people who will be there in Japan, in Bulgaria, in America, right, tomorrow, are different from the ones from yesterday. And you have to embrace that fluidity. You can't embrace complexity and not embrace fluidity, right, of identity.
1: I mean, yeah, I just... I guess sizzled reading your stuff hearing you talk like this and i'm disappointed in myself that i just i feel like such i'm like and yet again you know as you said with the attention to it's a nod to earlier stuff the uh article that you wrote about the was it 15 maps donald trump needs to see to be you know on the
0: the oh yeah (laughs) i love it when Uh, Editors always come up with better titles than I do for these things to make them go viral. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was stumping connectography. But that piece about the infrastructure linking bioregional zones, uh, you know, and and, and how those, like, yeah, obviously, like East Missouri is more Illinois and West Missouri is more Kansas, this kind of thing.
0: The and yet that you raised is a very localized thing. But this is the point at which every one of us should always, and it's a healthy thing to do, is to check ourselves and say, is what I'm about to say genuinely representative of the average or median person in the world's view, or is it really just me and where I am? And I have to go through that exercise all the time.
1: I agree with you that there's no denying that the values are towards this. But, like, something has to give, right? Because, I mean, just in the last few years in the course of my life, you know, wages have more or less stagnated while the cost of living has gone up like 400%. I don't expect gas prices to ever come back down. You know, people are talking about not only now like, oh, well, we'll just let virtual reality travel. Now they're talking about virtual reality children, you know, have a baby in the metaverse that you'll like breed this thing that comes up in AI and you'll be able to like farm your own... Designer baby and VR the read that I have on this is on the one hand, like what there's the pressure toward being able to just breeze through, move effortlessly around, but then, as a New Yorker, you know it's like when it costs eighteen dollars to cross the Brooklyn Bridge as an urban nexus gets denser. The amount of time it takes to cross that space it, it actually starts to feel like you you might be in a collapsing neutron star from which you can't escape you right. know like the, Well, by the way and, i and, never and, say it's yeah.
0: effortless the, the, this is interesting and i don't i don't mean this is a pushback i mean this is, a, is actually just a useful no please there yes. is such there is a ton of friction involved in movement you know and again in, in my own personal life sort of becoming an expat the first step is the hardest you know you get so much administrative stuff to deal with that you never sorted out before. But then after that, steps two and three become easier and easier. Now, even for people as a whole, though, if we again take the young digital nomads, for them, it is a lot easier than it was before. We made a list like, you know, what did it take for us to move to Berlin a few years ago? It's like we had to deal with the school here and we had to deal with like our, our house and like you know, what to do with all our stuff and like getting it around and, like visas and all this stuff and like where are we going to live and blah, 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 right? Just a few years later, especially post-COVID, with so much being digitized in terms of services, a young person today can just be like, they can get on a plane to a destination in another country. They know they're going to have a visa on arrival. They can book their Airbnb before they even, uh, while they're on the plane. They, can, they don't even need to change their SIM card because they'll just use WhatsApp everywhere. So the only thing left that cannot be done almost like instantly Well, on your flight to a place is finding a place in a school for your kids if you have kids. But most young people don't have kids. So they're not even thinking about that right now. So it has become easier than it was, even in the short frame of reference that I'm giving you as an example here. But again, I talk a lot about the difficulties of people moving around. There's still the the majority. I mean, the large percentage of the number of international migrants today are Filipinos and Indians, some of whom have their passports confiscated when they arrive at a construction site in the uh, Gulf countries where they're working. There's a lot of hardship, right, involved in mobility for most people much of the time. Huge amounts of financial sacrifice, you know, payments made to coyotes and, you know, other types of People who facilitate passage, you know, the kinds of stuff that I thought I knew but didn't in terms of the stories that I'm hearing of human trafficking and that the volume of human trafficking being higher now than even at the time that we thought was the peak of human trafficking. There's tragedy involved every minute of every day when we're talking about mobility. Look at the number of people right now waiting on the Mexican border to come in. Look at the rafts of Africans being mowed down by machine guns by Italian and Spanish Frontex soldiers paid by the European Union to murder African asylum seekers. That's every bit the reality of mobility today. So at the same time, it's the 1% who buy a second, third, fourth passport, right? Jet set around the world, choose jurisdictions based upon low tax and have access to the world and move their money. They, They are as people as fungible as their money is. There's that too, and there's growing numbers of both, right? Obviously the number of people who are in the more tragic circumstances exceeds the number of people doing But let's face it, economies are tipped and shaped by the movement of the 1%, right? And the resources that they can at the push of a button relocate and where they choose to domicile themselves. So I also look at that and both can happen at the same time. So you can have more friction for a large number of people and you can have more flow for other people and they can, you know, the dynamics uh, can change.
1: So just, you know, to land this, I want to say like, okay, I think if anybody hasn't already figured this out, you make a, a rather compelling rhetorician and the book is, is convincing. Let's speak to me or the 10 years younger version of me the the people that are on the on the brink of expatriation my little brother he's actually you know 15 years younger than me almost out of his aerospace engineering degree and like if i don't graduate with it this year i'm just going to travel the world forget it i'm out what is your counsel to someone who has not grown up with the same conditioning to the normalcy of international life that you have. How do you help people? How do you, how do you like beckon people out into a, a globalist identity?
0: Well, the, the good news is I don't have to in the sense that it's happening anyway. You know, I myself am surprised by the data Right. I never thought that there'd be that the number of American expats would double in the last uh, 12, 15 years. I didn't predict that at all, but it, it's happened. So I'm hardly alone in this. So that's one thing it's happening. I don't need to play. I don't need to have a, a, some kind of hand um, in it because, again, young people are voting with their feet. Secondly, you know, mobility, again, to move is human. Right. We have that capacity. It's something that's easy to learn. And whether it's out here in Asia or any other corner of the world that I've been in, I've always, over the last 15, 20 years, always met scores of Americans, Canadians, Europeans, you name it, who are outside of that traditional comfort zone geographically that they grew up in, and they adapt very, very quickly. That even includes many people who've been, quote-unquote, repatriated to their country of ethnic origin. So think about all the Chinese Americans in China who have made a killing Economically, commercially, right? As investors, business people, tech entrepreneurs moving back to China, all they had to do was to brush up their Mandarin, right? But now they're they're swingers. They're like they're ballers in China, right? Same is true for India. Same is true of uh, some African Americans in Africa. It's certainly true of Arab Americans in the Middle East or non-Arabs, uh, of course, in in Middle Eastern countries, melting pot places like Dubai. So it's happening all the time. Just look again at the uptake on the Dubai Nomad visa, the uptake on Silicon Bali and case after case. When I was last in Tbilisi, Georgia, I mentioned before, my daughter and I were on a train trip across Eurasia and we stopped in Tbilisi, which is which was just just bottom line. It was a shithole. The first time I was there, you know, like 20 years ago, I went back with my daughter just a couple of years ago, right before COVID. And lo and behold, the lingua franca on the streets of Tbilisi, Georgia, and again, we're not talking about um, southeastern United States, (laughs) Atlanta metro area here. We're talking about the Caucasus Mountains sandwiched between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea between Turkey and Azerbaijan, a little country that was invaded by Russia in 2008. This country, the lingua franca on the streets of Georgia is American English. I mean, the number of, like, co-working spaces and digital nomads and advertising people and tech startup, you know, folks. Yeah, it's your, it's your brother. It's your younger brother times, like, I don't know, thousands. And then a, a lot more young Europeans who are effectively identical in many ways in how they've grown up. So, again, they're ahead of us, Michael. This is maybe the, the important note to end on. That generational psychology is such a dangerous force of inertia, right? It's not to say that conventional wisdom received wisdom is not valuable. Of course, it is It's immensely valuable. There's so much of it that we should hold dear and apply to the present and the future to avoid some of the mistakes that we're making. That's a separate topic. But young people are ahead of us. I want everyone to understand this absolutely crystal clear, right? They're already doing it. Everyone needs to understand that you and I are not talking about the future. We are talking about right now. Everything we're talking about is already well underway. All you have to do is watch young people voting with their feet. They're not waiting for your permission, my permission, Joe Biden's permission, or any other power that be, right? The map of the future of humanity is being designed, being painted every single minute with young people walking taking trains, taking planes, getting out of cars, driving mobile homes, and physically relocating to places that they feel they can belong. And that is why, despite all of the cynicism, all of the valid reasons why we should be incredibly scared about the future, the one, maybe the one thing that makes me most hopeful is that young people actually do know better than we think they do, what's best for them, and they're chasing it by voting with their feet.
1: Well, that's lovely and ebullient. On our way out, I want to give you one more opportunity here to address the sort of stock outro question of this show, which is to imagine that the past and future are all stretched out on either side of us, like pearls in a string. And those moments in the future are there; they're present; they're here now. And those people are here now, and you. Are in conversation with them. And maybe we are, you know, like there's, I don't know, there's physics to suggest that possibly we are in conversation with the future in some way. What would you hope to leave for the future of this time, like of your life, of your experience, you kernelize and transmute? And then what would you, what is the thing that you most wish to? you could ask the future and I'll give you whatever horizon, you know, you said 2050 for some of this stuff, but like however far you want to go, you know, I'd love to know what it is that you wish that you could live to see and likely won't and wish you knew that too.
0: You know, I, I structure this book according to four scenarios. One is called regional fortresses. The other is the new middle ages, Uh, The third is barbarians at the gate. And the fourth is northern lights. And the northern lights scenario of a peacefully, with low friction, recirculating human population to the geographies of, you know, maximum suitability, effectively being migratory like birds, right? Being nomadic and migratory. And again, just resettling as needed with a suite of technologies that make any place sustainably habitable, but being seasonably, you know, again, nomadic as needed. That is the vision, right? And if we were to work backwards from that vision, you know, we could imagine getting there in the year 2050, but obviously it's highly, highly unlikely. But that's the whole point of visioning exercises and scenario building is to, you know, to to create narratives of these alternate pathways that we could take. And the future is going to be a mix of all of those. The present is a mix of all four of those scenarios already today. Um, you know, for every Putin, you have a Canada, right? You have a Justin Trudeau, right? And so on. So there's a yin and yang going on around these uh, scenarios. But I, well, I, would, I would love to live to see that uh, world that northern lights world as I call it this archipelago of sustainable settlements the sort of advice or the kind of to me the 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 wisdom to impart if any to today's generation maybe building on your question about uh, you know where what to tell young people this is more less about geography and more about agency and sort of you know you can do one of two things the way I see it to really drastically oversimplify if you want, to create or contribute to a better world, a better future for your and the next generation. You can either A, move people to the geographies of resources where they can have a better material life and survive longer, right? You either move people to resources or you move technologies to people where they need them, right? The technologies of... Uh, water desalination and uh, hydroponic agriculture and, you know, 3D printed sustainable homes and shelters and dwellings, these kinds of things. Two things. You either move people to resources or you move technologies to people. And I raise this as a test. It's a litmus test. You know, you're either doing one of these two things or you're not doing one of these two things, right? If you're doing one of these two things, you're part of the solution. You're an active agent of progress in the world towards that positive northern light scenario that I posit in the book. If you're not doing one of those two things, you're either a free rider or you're potentially actively inhibiting that future. Just ask yourself that question. Are you moving people to resources or technologies to people or are you not? And that's it to me. I I mean, it's more complicated than that, but if to really boil it all down to its essence, right? That's what people should be asking themselves every day. Those that can, those that can afford to, those that have time to reflect, those that have resources, you know, to act. That's what it comes down to for me.
1: Wonderful, Parag. This has been a treat. You know, I, I, it's funny because we have known each other for a very long time, but I don't think we've actually ever had a conversation.
0: <laughs> As, <laughs> like this. You know,
1: it's like this. So, this is long in coming. And I really appreciate you taking the time and being willing to take me up on the invitation to come on the show.
0: Well, thank you so much. This has been a, a treat, a pleasure, an honor, great conversation. And great to see you, even if not in the flesh, but mobility being what it is, I will uh, pay you a visit.
1: Well, I mean, God willing, I hope that this is just the beginning of me really learning as much as I can from you about how to be the international man of mystery that I imagined myself to be 15 years ago.
0: Fortunately, you still have plenty of time.
1: Yeah. Plenty of disruptions to knock me out of my little divot (laughs) before then. Best to you and your family. Thanks a lot.
0: Likewise. Thank you, Michael. Take care.
1: Thanks again for listening. Follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Michael Garfield. If you would like to steep more persistently and ambiently in the intellectual atmosphere of this program, find the music for future fossils at michaelgarfield.bandcamp.com. And please help yourself to extensive public archives book club recordings and additional content that never made it to the main rss feed at patreon.com slash michael garfield we have some awesome episodes coming up i'm excited to share with you thanks for holding tight and until then have a most excellent now